0: Visit the ingospel dot com website. What did you tell me? So we'll pick up in Genesis 38 tonight. In your Bibles, not anywhere else. We have been so far through the book of Genesis. We've been following the family of Abraham. And with each generation, we get a story or two and we get one of the sons in the family making good decisions or repenting of their sin and choosing to follow God. God blesses them and that becomes the line. And we usually get a little genesis of that other brother or the other brothers. And then they kind of spin off into nothing. And the book continually focuses in on that family. Well, with the family of Jacob, We've got 11 kids, and the first three are not going to be following after God. A lot like Esau, they're going to follow after the world. And we have already seen some vignettes with uh, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, Simeon and Levi go and murder a whole town, and they're unrepentant about it. Then you got Reuben, who's having illicit affairs with his uh, stepmom, and he's unrepentant about it. And then we get in Genesis 37, a kickoff story for Joseph where he gets kicked out of the family and he's scurried off to be a slave somewhere. And then in Genesis 38, it focuses in on the fourth son, which is Judah. And Judah's going to be the line from which the Messiah comes from. And in reading this chapter, did anybody read ahead? You did? You wonder why? Why this guy? And what does it look like? And I think by the end of tonight... I was going to try to fit in more chapters, but I think I'm just going to do a shorter one tonight because in 39 we start back up with Joseph and we really follow Joseph more thoroughly. God's got a plan to save this family, but this family's, with each generation, getting more and more embroiled with the Canaanites. And the Canaanites bring with them idol worship, pretty despicable practices, especially around sexual relationships. And they have moved to the point where Dinah gets raped. And the brothers are still good friends with some of these people and they're still interacting with them. And God's going to take the whole family, pull it out of Canaan and bring it down to Egypt for a while and let those traditions and the family get distinctly uh, molded in that time in Egypt where they become Jewish people. Um, but this story is part of why that's going to happen. And honestly, reading ahead, you're thinking what you could possibly get out of this. So I'll forewarn you on this. With each of these main characters, I've been surprised this time through the Bible that I'm taking a fresh read, and I'm not accepting my Sunday school image of these characters. And in each case, when you read carefully what's here, I think there's an adult version of Genesis that's not the cartoon, fuzzy, veggie tale, flannel board version of Genesis, where these these rich, complex characters that follow God, or they don't follow God. And the narrative is there. I think the same is true here, only... Well, we'll dig into it. Verse one, uh, it came to pass at that time that Judah, the fourth son, departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite, whose name was Hira, which means noble. And Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua, which means wealth. And he married her and went into her. Um, Notice real quick, and and this is Judah, we're going to start out, Judah's not on the right track he didn't consult with Jacob, he didn't get the blessing, and he's marrying a Canaanite woman. And so far in Genesis, every time that's happened, it's a bad recipe. Like God doesn't honor that decision-making process. Um, so checking with your parents before you marry someone may be a good idea. Um, verse three, she conceived and bore a son and he called her his name Ur, er, which you'd think if it was two R's, it would just be, this is an error, but um, it, the word Ur er means awake. Um, she conceived again and bore another son, and she called his name Onan, which means strong. And you might recognize the name Onan for Onanism, which we'll get to later in the chapter. And verse five, she conceived yet again and bore a son called and called his name She'elah, which means petition. Um, and he was at Chezeb when she bore him. So Judah has three sons. They're all born of a Canaanite woman named Shua. Potentially then, None of these three sons are a good fit for the line of Messiah. So God's got some options. He can go to the next kid in the line, but he's running out of kids uh, um, from Leah, um, which would be the first wife of Jacob. And God's uh, looking at this situation and this isn't there. The very last line, he was at Chezeb when she bore him. It sounds like a location and it is a location, but in the Hebrew, it's really interesting. That phrase, he was at Chezeb when she bore him, with only three Hebrew words, and we add a ton of words in there that make Chezeb sound uh, like a town, but it's not necessarily a town, though most people interpret it that way. Literally translate, it means Shela, false at birth. So something with Shela is just wrong. There's something false about Shela, um, and or there's great irony in that the town that she bore him in was named false. So you would name a town false. Um, which is an odd thing to name a town. So it could be that's just an interpretation thing, and it could just be a very ironic place to be born. Verse six. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and and her name was Tamar. Um, the word Tamar is an interesting name. In the Hebrew, it means palm tree or upright. She was an upright person. Um, and I okay. So first of all, Sunday school version in Genesis does not do this chapter. It skips this chapter. It's Joseph, there's colors, there's the slave, and we get into a lot of things in this chapter that are really scary. I think when we took the vignette with Simeon and Levi, we saw what wrath does to a person, and that wrath leads to this kind of destructive nature that causes conflict with everyone around you, and eventually murder. In this chapter, as uncomfortable as it is, but we are in a PG-13 Bible study, it deals with sex, and it deals with proper relationships when it comes to sexual relationships and whatnot. And we're going to see these three sons, things just go wrong. Um, and Tamara is at the center of this kind of story. And her name being upright really defies or sets a clue for us that maybe she's not the horrible person in the chapter that at first glance she right, seems to be. Because she print, she's going to pretend to be a harlot. And I got to tell you, half the commentators I read were like, she's a horrible person. And I don't know if that's what this chapter is all about, but it doesn't tell us if Tamar's a Canaanite or not. So we have clues. And again, I read commentaries and it kind of amazed me because again, they're people I respect and they just say she was a Canaanite woman, but it does not say she was a Canaanite woman. And there's lots of theories about this. Some people believe she might've been an Abdulamite woman uh, because that was mentioned, but it doesn't say that Tamar was of that that group specifically and I want to take the Bible for what it says, not what we think it says. Um, so far in Genesis, here's some clues that I was thinking about when it comes to Tamar. Anyone outside the family line of the Hebrews or the Jewish people, it specifically says so and so married so and so the Hittite or so and so the Midianite. We've really not seen an occasion where somebody goes outside the family. Even in this paragraph, it says he went up to hang out with his buddy the uh, a certain Adulamite doesn't even give the name; it just says a certain Adulamite, oh whose name was Hira. But even the best friends, when they're not Jewish people, when they're not part of this group or this family, it tells us they're not part of the group; it cues us in that they're hanging out with people in the world. It doesn't do that with Tamar. Verse one even notes uh, the Adulamite thing. It also fits. It also fits with how this thing's all going to turn out. So there were prior issues with Esau, Simeon, etc., with all these other folks, but there doesn't seem to be an issue with Tamar. She actually is in the line of Jesus. She's the first woman mentioned in Matthew and Luke. And then the last clue, and this is what blew me away with the commentaries, Tamar is actually translatable in the Hebrew. It's not a Hittite word. It's a Hebrew word. So she was named by parents that were either making great fun of the Hebrew like stealing a good name from another culture, or she was actually a Hebrew Hebrew woman that that is living with another group of people or whatnot. So, and it's not necessarily a ru- rule. We're going to see non Hebrew women brought into the lineage of Jesus, but the husband in that case would be a Jewish person. In this case, Judah is, well, that's where the word Jew comes from. It comes from Judah. So, anyone of the line of Judah is a Jew. Um, and that's where the word eventually gets translated to be all Israelites and all Hebrews, but that's where that word comes from. Okay, verse 7. But er, I keep wanting to say error but Er, Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him, period. (laughs) Amazing sentence, right? So far in the book of Genesis, we've seen two sons kill an entire city of people after they made them cut themselves. We have seen rape, we have seen all sorts of horrible things going on, and all we get here is Er was wicked, the Lord killed him. What do you have to do to get zapped by the Lord like that? Like he had to be an absolute scumbag because we've seen pride in the book of Genesis. We've seen greed in the book of Genesis. We've seen everything so far. And it leaves it up to the imagination. However, the Bible doesn't give us what he did or what it was. It's just that he's gone. He's out of the picture, verse eight. And Judah said to Onan, go to your brother's wife and marry her. Raise her up and heir to, to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. So apparently that's not a good thing to do. Um, And this has caused, for generations in the church, Onanism is the act of having sex, but then letting things happen outside of the female. Okay, I know this is kind of (laughs) R-rated. I'm trying to say this artfully. To admit on the ground is probably the classiest way you can put that. Um, And that's been then translated to say that this is where the Bible says masturbation is wrong. But the point of the passage isn't that he was... First of all, it's not masturbation, because there's a woman there, right? There's two people, so therefore it's not self-satisfaction. Second... Um, Onan's sin here is that he's being selfish and not giving his brother an heir. That's the problem with what he's doing. He's not doing what he's been asked to do by his father. Um, so apparently not obeying your dad is worse than a lot of other things, right kids? So, um, but the spirit of what he's doing here is that there's a custom that is really hard for us to understand, um, Judah's being religious about the firstborn status. He's really getting caught up on the firstborn is important. And even if heir dies, it's important that there's an heir for heir. <laughs> uh, I didn't even have that in my notes. Um, so that Tamar is taken care of. This is how women were taken care of. In this society, when she married heir, she married into that family. So when heir dies, the son or the heirs of heir would be the ones that would take care of the mom. So with no heirs for heir, there's no one to take care of Tamar. So that's the request of, of where we see that. And I'll get into that in Leviticus and Deuteronomy a little later on. I think there's a better place to talk about it. For here, we just I think there's a, this is an, a really confusing verse and one that really has caused a lot of strife and pain in the church uh, because people get focused on the, the action of what happened instead of the heart and the spirit of what Onan was doing and why that was wrong. Um, He wasn't taking care of Tamar. He was being kind of selfish. Verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. This is not in line with what we'll see in the law later in the Bible. If a husband dies, the younger brothers in the family are still obligated to take care of her. So by sending her back to her original family, this is a huge shameful, she's going back without any kids. This is kind of a disgrace for the family. Um, and the rationale we're given is that she's killed two sons. He doesn't want to give her a shot at the third and he's blaming Tamar for the death of his sons, not their wickedness, which is what the Bible blames. They're saying God killed the sons, not Tamar. Um, So this is kind of horrible for Tamar. We're seeing a woman be abused and cast away, and thrown out without any kind of security. Um, And this is one hundred percent Judah's sin, And that he's doing this to her. is horrible. Um, It's amazing how, when there's patterns of tragedy, people try to look for a cause. When bad things happen, it must be because of X, Y, Z, and it's superstition, and it's the root of almost all pagan religions. Is when bad or very good things happen, we, we ascribe or create a story around why they're happening. Why can't we find a house? It must be that God doesn't want us to have a house. And we start ascribing a line of thinking to these things that happen in our life, which aren't necessarily the case. And in this case, it is definitely not the case that Tamar caused these young men to die. It was some completely different cause. But Judah is saying, well, it must be her. And we're going to see that he's then not gonna keep his promise and marry her to his third son. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife died, and Judah was comforted, and he went up to his sheep shares at Timnah. Timnah means portion. I looked up all these words, and there's not a lot to them this time. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite was there. So his wife dies, and he decides he's gonna go hang out with his buddies, to not mourn his wife. So he's had three sons via Shua, and none of them are ones that are gonna be acceptable for the line of Jesus. So we've got a we need another kid from Judah for him to be in the line of Jesus. Sheep shearing's an interesting cultural tradition that we don't have today. We kind of do. People that keep sheep, there's usually once a year, maybe twice. Do you know this from the hobby farm? where you get together and you bring all your friends and you need lots of people because you get a few people to hold the sheep and then you get somebody else to take all that beautiful wool off the sheep and in this era with these herds people this would have been the harvest festival the sheep shearing festival would have been the stuff there's money to be made the merchants show up to buy the wool there's gold the merchants have other things to sell them and barter. so they're getting probably lots of beverages they can drink and food to eat and you know scarves and things like that so the sheep shearing festival would have been a really big deal so it's kind of like us going to a carnival or a festival or a holiday or a farmer's market or something like that where you're feeling bad about things and you're just going to leave the house and go up and do this um so it's a celebration and in, and it was told to tamar saying look your father-in-law is going up to timna to shear his sheep Again, you read over that and you don't think of the celebration and it just sounds like a weird okay. Mm-hmm. So he's going to Sheer Sheep. So I think it's interesting that somebody told Tamar this. She was waiting for this moment, and I think she's got a plan here because she has been wronged by this family. Um, they should be taking care of her. So she took her widow's garments and covered it. Took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is on the way to Timna. And she saw that Shalah was grown, and he was, and she was not given to him as a wife. So Judah's not keeping his promise, and he's not going to give her over to his third son. Um, probably out of fear, and we've already talked about that not being a good decision-making place. So Judah's not keeping his promise is sin number one. He's going to have a sin number two that, that keeps getting worse for him. So <clears throat> this is where the commentators pick on Tamar. She's dressing up like a prostitute, and she's going to snare Judah with her wiles, and this is a horrible thing. However, I found one commentator that was looking at this, and and I'm not trying to defend it. It, it could be the case this is just sinful on Tamar's part, but here's another perspective. One perspective is, yes, it's wrong to do, be a prostitute and lure men into your bed, and I wouldn't argue with that argument at all, but technically even they're not under the law right now. So there's no law. They're not under it. They're not held accountable to it. But when the law gets written, she actually doesn't sin here. She's actually within the law. And if you look at this really carefully, first of all, Leviticus 18, 15, and 16 says you can't sleep with your daughter-in-law and you can't sleep with your sister-in-law. So Judah and Shelah should not be sleeping with Tamar. In the case of death, however that law gets put to the side. And that's exactly what's happened right here because her husband is dead. They actually have a responsibility to take her in as a wife and actually have kids with her. And then those kids are there to take care of her when she gets old. The veil um, protects her identity. So in Leviticus 18, it says, and a lot of Leviticus 18 pieces says, you should not uncover or look at these various relationships in um, without their coverings on. So you shouldn't look at you should not look at your father when he's naked. You should not look at your mother when and there's this list in Leviticus 18 of all the various ways and people you should not be looking at when they're naked because it scars you for life. <laughs> By wearing a veil she's never really fully uncovered. So Judah never really looks at his daughter-in-law uncovered. And that So technically, and again, I'm speaking like a Pharisee right now, like technically (laughs) we're on the right path. But here's another one. In Deuteronomy 25, 5, and I'll read you this first. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. She shouldn't leave the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. So it was right when they first put Onan on the job, but then Onan didn't fill up to it. And now that she's not being given over to Shelah, there's a breach of the law right now. Judah's family would be at the law. And the best part about it is when this doesn't happen, we'll get here and we get to Deuteronomy 2. The rule says that the woman can go to the gate where the judges or all the people are, and she should complain. And if that man still refuses to take her in as a wife, she can unlace his shoe, take it off, and spit at him and throw the shoe at him (laughs) in front of the whole city and forevermore his name changes to one who has had his shoe thrown at him. And that's his new name. You're a disgrace to the city because you're not taking care of the women in your life. And you're abandoning women to whatever turmoil they're going to have being outside of a family and outside of a home. So compared to all other ancient civilizations in every other part of the entire world, this is an amazingly graceful law to take care of the people in your society. You don't leave people uncared for, right? And the rule with the shoe and the spitting is just icing on the cake for me. <laughs> this is to protect the women in the family. Not doing this is a curse to Judah's family. And retirement in this culture is 100% having kids that can take care of you when you're too old to take care of yourself. There was no social security from the government. There was no 401k plans. There was no senior living centers. None of that stuff that we've put in place in our society existed then. You either had kids to take care of you when you got old, or you had to go hang out outside the city gates and try to scrape food up wherever you could get it. And you became homeless. So whoever owns the kid is a big deal. And when Onan says, well, he knows he won't own the kid, therefore he doesn't want to have a kid with her, I think that's incredibly selfish, because it wouldn't have been his kid to worry about, right? And, and he's basically denying her some sort of security in life. So the sat in an open place, do you see that verse right there? Uh, literally translated in the Hebrew, I can't even say it, it's got the little noises. It actually means to the sit in an open place actually means eye opener. She sits in a place, she's going to open Judah's eyes, and make him aware of what he's doing. So Judah's sin is going to entrap him, and the reason she's able to entrap him is because his sin, his sexual deviancy, is predictable. She knew where to sit on the road. She knew when to sit there so some other guy didn't come up and think she was a prostitute, right? She sat there and waited for Judah because she knew he would do it. How did she know that if there wasn't a history of sin? So the history of sin gets known by your family. She knows this is going to work, So Judah and Shelah are not keeping their vows. Judah has no legitimate Hebrew kids. Shelah's false from the start. Even his name says he's false or the place where he was born says he's false. And Tamar's devising a way to take this false family and make them right. And she's gonna do it. So that's an entirely different read on Tamar is she's not just some prostitute here. That's not what's going on. She's holding these people to a rule and a law of righteousness. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way, and he said, please let me come into you. He doesn't have any game here. This is just, there's no respect. There's no, I mean, he's not trying to woo her. He's like, I'd like to come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law because she's got her face. So like Reuben, Judah's tempted by lust. And this is sin number two. Matthew Henry computes that Judah's age here um, is not that old. In fact, and I don't know how he figures this out, um, he's feeling like Sheila would have been extremely young and these other, that they were marrying at 12, 13 years old. So we're looking at Judah maybe in his 20s at this point, not that old. and. um so he's a young man when this is going on and he's got young sons that he had had six, seven years ago. And as he's marrying them off, um, you know, at puberty would have been 12 years. And so if he's 24, that's generationally. And I don't know where Matthew Henry gets that, but he's a really good commentator. And if you've never read Matthew Henry, he kind of blows your mind all the time. Um, and I didn't, he didn't quite lay out his math on that, but his argument, his point was Judah's a very young man and the lost thing is a problem for him. So it's a sin that's going to snag him. Who does it hurt when you do this kind of stuff? It's going to hurt, as we've already seen in Judah, or in Genesis, when people marry multiple wives, we get insecurity, we get competition, we get children that are jealous and competitive with each other and insecure, and we get anger. So there's been a lot of bad issues in this family with this kind of stuff. Further symbolically, notice what Tamar is going to take from Judah as a pledge from payment. So one way to read this is when you're off having illicit sex, you lose some things. It's not just the joy of having sex. You're going to lose some key things and take notice of what Judah's is going to lose. So she said, what will you give me that you might come into me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. Obviously price for sex is a goat. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? In other words, I'm not going to just take your word for it. And he said, sure. What pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. And then he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. So she arose and went her way, and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she went back to being in mourning. So this is akin to giving somebody your driver's license, but the cord would have been really thinly woven silver or gold. So, and usually wrapped in a bracelet format and you would entwine those things because then you could unwrap one of those little twines of gold and you could use it as payment. So it was like giving her, it was like Judah gave her a billfold and then he would trade the billfold for the goat later on. Only the billfold has a lot more value to Judah than it does to her. But in the case of these three things, uh, we start to see what sexual sin actually steals from a person. The signet, this is the only place in the Bible where that word's used. It's a seal or stamp that proves your identity. And I always think of like the 1800s when they had the little wax things on the letters and then they had their ring and they would stamp their signet or seal of approval. Uh, It's probably something like that, that was unique to Judah and it proved it was him. Uh, Thus the credit card, you know, it puts his name on things. So one of the things he's going to lose is he's going to lose his proof of his name. He's going to lose some reputation. The cord is a twined bracelet, usually gold or valuable metal. He's going to lose some wealth. And then the staff is, that word actually means branch or tribe. It's used throughout the Bible, um, but it's usually a walking staff or a support that you use throughout your life. A good staff is something you'd have for decades. A shepherd would have a larger staff because they'd actually use it as a tool, but even non-shepherds would have staves that they used for support because they didn't always have even roads and that sort of thing. To have a walking staff or a walking stick is still something we do today. So Judah's going to give away, in order to get this sex, he's going to give away, on loan for a goat, his reputation, his money, and his support in life. And he's just handing those over for a quickie on the way home from his party. Um, Now Judah has given away these things. His conscience isn't clean anymore. And that's probably the thing that he's giving up that's the worst thing that he's giving up is now he's got guilt around this. The small amount of money is nothing compared to the support and the spirit that he hands away. Um, And the comfort that it gives. Psalm 23 says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your, same word, staff, they comfort me. That there's a comfort in having those things with you. And he's got to go around without his comfort. That rod and the, the signet that he had, would have represented rulership. Um, And I think this is an interesting kind of thought that his right to rule, that signet that he has, his right to be head of a family, um, is something that we too give up if there's sexual sin in our lives. We can't really call Christ our king anymore because he's not ruling our life. There's a clear law. You're supposed to not do certain things. And when you run off and do them, you can't really claim that Christ is your king anymore because he's not your king. You're a traitor at best, right? Right and then the staff, that support um, is what we need to do ministry in God's kingdom. And if we give away our support in the spirit, we're not able to do the ministry we're called to do, which is way more fun than having sex with some harlot on the side of the road. So she went away, which means she goes into hiding. She goes and hides herself away. Verse 20, and Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend Adolamite, the Adolamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand but he didn't find her. Oh, she's run off with his credit cards. And now he's like, wait a sec, what do you mean you couldn't find her? Then he asked the man of that place saying, where's the harlot who is openly by the roadside, which means she wasn't the kind of harlot. The word there is kadasha, which usually means a temple prostitute, which is why the, the who was openly by the roadside has to get added to the sentence because most kadasha would be at the temple. You'd, if you want to have prostitutional sex, you'd go to the temple to do it. The temples were giant whorehouses, unless you went to Moloch, and then they were giant abortion centers. So they served a purpose in the society to do sin. And the kind of harlot he's mentioning is someone who is a professional harlot that would be in these temples. So he has to say, who is openly by the roadside, which means she's like a lower end harlot. And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I can't find her. Also, the men of this place said there was no harlot in this place. So he's given away his support, his signet ring, and his, and his gold cord, so a little bit of money that goes with it. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young woman a goat, and you have not found her. So Judah's kind of a, this is just shameful. Instead of going and owning up to this himself, he, he has his friend go try to deliver the goat, which keeps him above reproach, right? Oftentimes people with excess money will do those kinds of things so they don't get their hands dirty. And he doesn't even want to deal with her again. He wants his friend to go deal with her again. Judah's not a nice guy in this part. He's one of those kind of scumbags. Notice his primary thinking then is to avoid shame. So if it's not a big deal to go running around and have sex, why does he feel shame about it? And I think that's because God gives us a conscience and we're supposed to do things one way and we don't. This is the problem with private sins and why they're so sinister. Sinister is we think that private sins can stay private, but they don't. (laughs) Um, Like Hagar said in Genesis 16, remember she's by the well and she says, then she called him the name of the Lord who spoke to her and she called him, you are the God who sees. God sees everything. And this stuff that Judah's doing is getting recorded in a book for us to read thousands of years later there's no secret sin. Uh, and it came to pass about three months later, so she's going to be showing by now that Judah was told saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is a she is with child by harlotry. Notice they phrase this broadly. The narrative we got just above there said she had sex with him once and then she went off into harlot. It doesn't say she was off running around playing a harlot to all the guys that walked by. She wasn't douche. I think she was targeting Judah and she went and did it to so he would fulfill her duty and give her a life insurance policy. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned because this is what you do with women that embarrass you. And throughout history, nasty, icky men have done this kind of stuff to people that embarrass them. So he has suspicions, he disregards them, and now he has anger. There's a progressive sin here. First, he's suspicious that Tamar has caused his sons to die. Then he disregards her and casts her away, and now he's angry at her and he wants to kill her. Sin just keeps getting worse. I don't know I get worked up about this, because I feel for Tamar. She's kind of been tossed around here. And, and I just... We have so many people in our society that get treated this way, and it's so wrong in every way. It almost wants you, wants you to go back to the slavery of Joseph, but he's out of the picture right now. But this kind of stuff is just... Wow, how is this the ancestor of Jesus? And how is God going to redeem this guy doing these things? Verse 25, when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man whom these belong, I am with child, by the man. And she said, please determine who these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. She's got him, right? It takes two to sin. There's another situation in the New Testament where the woman is blamed and people just kind of forget that there's men involved in this too, right? In both cases, God's orchestrated salvation for that woman. So I thought it was worth going and reading in John 8. You know this story. It's just a reminder story, right? Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in idolatry And when they had set her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, if you're in the very act, there's two that would have gotten caught. But somehow the man's not in the picture. Now Moses in the law commandeth commandeth us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They're trying to trap Jesus. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him with. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the ground with his finger, and though as though he did not hear, he could have been writing Judah and Tamar. Right? Like this is what he could have been writing to remind them, like, look what's going on right here, Judah's the one in the wrong, not Tamar. And the Jews would have been taught that from a very early age because they would have been reading Genesis. There's tons of theories on what he was writing in the dirt, and I love all of them. Mm-hmm. Right? So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. That's bold because he's assuming they're all going to be honest. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst, When Jesus raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those that accuse you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In that picture, Judah is so in the wrong. And Tamar is so in the right. And in the same way that God forgives this woman and says, don't sin anymore. Keep going. I think that's what God wants to do with all these people. These sins aren't beyond God's forgiveness. These are things that God can love and what God loves is a repentant heart. How can he love Judah? The next few verses are gonna show us what Judah does when his sin is put in front of him. And praise God those Pharisees caught in their own conviction. Again, if they're being convicted by their conscience, it means that they've committed sins in their heart, in their head, or they've been going to this prostitute that they're trying to get stoned. And they want to get rid of what makes them guilty, right? And their conscience is what stops them. And Jesus is what saves her. So Judah, verse 26, acknowledged them. And he said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. How's Judah going to be in the line of Jesus? Because he repents. It's not that he's perfect. He's so sinful. It's crazy in this chapter. But at the end of the day, he actually repents. He turns it around. Matthew 1 uh, and the book in Luke 3, 2, both have genealogies of Jesus. In Matthew 1, I'm just going to read you the first few lines. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, translated, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar actually gets mentioned in the line of Jesus in a Hebrew genealogy, which would have been really risque at that point, because it generally goes father to son. But she's mentioned here because she's essential. She's the one that saves the line of Judah. What's different about him from Reuben, who laid with his stepmom? Reuben, again, has been cast aside by God. He's just one of the brothers now. Reuben never repents of his sins, he just acts like it's okay. Judah does repent. He acknowledges, really, 26 is an important verse. One, he acknowledges his sin and he says, Yes he's admitting those items are mine. So Judah acknowledged them. He says, yeah, those are mine, which means I was there with you. I was sinning too. So if I'm going to burn her, I should burn myself. So then in the second part, she's more righteous than I. He he retracts or takes away his earlier judgment and he calls her righteous. He actually does a 180. He turns from his sin completely, even though it makes him look like he's a flip-flopper he acknowledges sin a second time because I did not give her to my son Selah. So he acknowledges the items that are proof of the, the infidelity. And then he acknowledges the sin of not taking care of, of her by giving her to his third son. So the two sins that he commits, he admits to both. And then part four, and he never knew her again, he stopped sinning. He doesn't do it. At least he doesn't do it with her. Um, but I like to think he just stopped. He's convicted and he stops. We've given credit, and I think especially in the U.S. church, we give sin way more credit than it should have. Under the Holy Spirit, we have the power to not sin anymore. And if we're convicted of sin, we should stop doing it. The good news is, in case you think you want to continue to have sin so you can continue to repent, the good news is sin is so woven into our character that you could spend a lifetime getting rid of different sins, and every few years you're going to get convicted of a new one going, yeah, I should maybe get that out of my life too. And yeah, I should maybe get that out of my life. So there's always this growing closer to God. We don't have to go back to old sins again and again and again, like a dog returns to its vomit, right? Is how the New Testament phrases it. We don't have to do that because we have the Holy Spirit to help us stop sinning. And it's really convenient for the entire church to say, yeah, but we all just struggle with sin. We're all just sinners and we just all keep sinning because if we all agree to that, it justifies more sin. But Paul has a response to that when one of the churches starts doing it. And I'm sorry I didn't look this one up. But Paul says, you don't sin so that grace can abound. Like we don't need to have that contract. You stop sinning because you love the Lord. Heavens know we shouldn't be doing that. And here we see Judas sees his sin. He repents of his sin. And I love that last part. And he never knew her again. He didn't keep sinning with Tamar. He stops doing it. He may still have lots of other sins he works on in his life, But on this point alone that he repents, he becomes worthy of the light of Messiah. God throws that sin so far away, it essentially purifies Judah. And the Bible says he takes our sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. When we sin and we ask for forgiveness for sin, it's gone. There's so many people, what breaks my heart, and some of you that have gone to Bethel, there's so many kids there that wrestle with sin like it owns them. And they haven't embraced the fact that God has released them from that. They actually have freedom from sin. They're not in prison to it. They can stop, but they've got every excuse and reason why they keep doing it. And they keep going back to it. And it never ends. It's this cycle that'll keep them guilty for their whole life. So they'll be ineffective. But when we repent, God forgives completely and totally. When we ask for God's help to stop sin, God helps us stop sinning because he wants that. That's in line with God's will. The trick is wanting to, and that's where Reuben, Simeon, and Levi didn't repent. Esau didn't repent. Ishmael didn't repent. And they just one by one are not part of God's plan anymore because they won't turn away from their sin. Verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. She gets double blessings. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it onto his hand, saying, this one came out first. It's like somebody, when the teacher asks a question, the kids raise their hand. It's like the kid going, I want to get out first, and stretches his hand out, waves at the midwife, and then the hand gets sucked back in. Again, this is still that human-made idea that it means something who comes out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, how did you break through? this breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, Perez means breach. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. So again, we have two brothers. This seems to be a pattern in Genesis. Uh, Notice that she uh, now has a midwife, which means Tamar is part of the family. So Judah actually started taking care of her because she had a midwife. She wasn't off in the wilderness having kids or back in, in other places. Judah's restored her place in the family, and she then becomes a woman of honor in this family, and she goes into the illustrious group of four women that are part of the line of Jesus Christ that get mentioned in the line of the Jesus Christ. The other three women, just so you know it, are Rahab, who is also a harlot. I think she actually was a harlot. Then Ruth, who was a Moabitus, and Bathsheba who was a Hittite. So we have three women that are going to be honored elevated, respected, and named by Matthew in the genealogy for the reasons of the stories that they're all a part of. The women themselves have a dignity and grace that saves that generation of the line. And in this case, it's not Judah that does it. It's the, the blessing of Tamar that makes this family get back on track. So at the end of the day, Judah had three sons that were not legitimate candidates. Now he has two sons that are legitimate candidates from a woman who is not named as a foreigner. She, she is likely part of the family. Um, and she is clearly her and God had a plan and she was acting in a way that would eventually be part of God's plan. No matter how you interpret this chapter or what you do with this chapter, I think there's three core things. First of all, onanism is not what this chapter is about. Second, uh, God is graceful. And God can take any messed up story and with repentance comes God's forgiveness and he can redeem it. And for me, that's hopeful because then a screw up like me can be part of God's plan on earth. And I think that's amazing. Um, And really a screw up like any of us, right? We all think of ourselves more than we think of God, especially when we're young. And the older we get, we want to just get more and more about God and less and less about ourselves. And that's a lifetime journey that God can bless. God is redemptive. And he knows who we are as humans. It's not who we were. It's what God makes us into. It's not the sin we did. It's the sin we're going to stop doing to move forward and and do what God wants us to. Jesus doesn't even shrink from this heritage. And I think that's pretty cool. In John 8, 41, he's in it with the Pharisees again. And he says, you do the deeds of your father. Because they said, we're of Abraham. And he said, you're not of Abraham. Abraham had faith and you don't. And then there's this. He's really, I mean, honestly, he did not have good relationships with the Pharisees. You do the deeds of the father. And then they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded and came forth from God. Neither I came of myself, but he sent me. It's odd that the Pharisees say we were not born of fornication. Yes, you were. It's like they didn't even read their own book, right? So it's absolutely from Judah's side, this is fornication. From Tamar, she knows she's in the law, but what's in Judah's heart is he's off having sex with a with a harlot. What's in Tamar's heart is she's living under the law of God and trying to make him keep his promise that she made when she married his first son. Um, but yeah, they were born of fornication. The whole Hebrew people were born of fornication. All Jewish people have this story in verse 38. In other words, there is no one that is born outside of sin. We're all born in this tradition of sin. And it's part of who we are as a human race. Even the Pharisees that thought they were holier than thou, Jesus's issue with them is that they weren't repentant of that. They wouldn't acknowledge their own sin. And it's why he had problems with them and called them nasty names. But God's grace is amazing. And he, anyone who repents can do it. I know I've made that point a few times, but I really think You get these little things, these little side notes in the book of Genesis where you see the storyline going here, but then it addresses this lineage. It keeps coming back to it. It's a key part of what Genesis is. Genesis is a genealogy, it is showing the family line and how it comes down to and moves through this sort of thing. Judah and Tamar will be extinct in that famine if it isn't for their brother Joseph. So Joseph becomes an essential part of the story, not because he's in the line of Jesus but because he's going to save the people that are going to be in the line of Jesus. Um, so Judah's going to do that. That said, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, this is a tough chapter. Uh, Lord, I just pray that, uh, that as we read through it, that it can speak to our hearts in the same way that it's spoke to mine, Lord. We know that you have a work to do. We know that this isn't a story for Sunday school kids, Lord. We get that, and we're not critiquing Sunday schools across the country. Um, but Lord, it is a story for adults, and we do need to keep our eyes on you. And Judah's issue is he had his eyes on everything but you. Um, and Lord, we know we that when it comes to sexual purity, that that's a big deal. And no matter what sins we have in our past around that, what issues we have, Lord, we can stop doing those things. And we need your help to do that. Um, Lord, we can live in purity. And there's an amazing blessing in that. We can live righteously, Lord. And we know that you honor that. And you multiply it, Lord, that you doubly bless tomorrow. Um, that when we live purely and we live under your law, Lord, that you have blessings for us in store. Lord, we don't want to lose our good name, our reputation. We don't want to lose our wealth and income, Lord. We don't want to lose the things you've blessed us with and the things you've honored us with. So in that, Lord, I just pray for everybody in this room, anybody that would listen to this recording, Lord, that you touch their lives in a way that, that their eyes are on you, and they're not focused on things that'll lead them astray, Lord, and things that'll take them away from your grace, your glory, and your blessing. Help us to fight for those things in our life. And Lord, this isn't just about sex. It's about any sin. It's about anything that pulls us off of you, Lord. Help us to continue to work towards being righteous, Lord. And anytime we're convicted, help us to be like Judah. The one line in the whole chapter where he does it right, Lord, is he repents. So Lord, if we're doing something and we're feeling guilty about it, and we're feeling like we need to stop, and we need to turn from our wicked ways, Lord, help us to just do it now, without thinking about it, without waffling over it, Lord, help us to just follow you, and to do it simply and cleanly, and Lord, help us to reach out in humility, to admit what we've done wrong, like Judah does in front of the whole group of people, Uh, Lord, help us to just be like him, and be quick to repent, quick to make it right, and never go back to the same sins, uh, that you can continue to mold us and shape us and help us to grow. In Jesus' name, we love you and thank you. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.